0: You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other in Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, good morning, everyone. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box. And uh, y'all are clearly the committed few within our church family. That everyone else is traveling, but y'all, y'all are here. Way to go. No, it's a... Uh, it's good to be here with y'all that we can worship our Lord and continue our, uh, our Advent series that we've been in the last three weeks and we're wrapping up this morning. And I love this time of year. I love that uh, Christmas is just a couple days away now, and and, uh, looking forward to celebrating that. really love this time of year. But this is the first time uh, in a long time that I haven't had a kid in preschool. And the preschool that our our children went to, they always did a Christmas pageant. And so I got to go see the Christmas pageant, and it's so cute, and they're dressed up as angel or shepherd or something like that. Uh, Last year was my favorite because – Della was the star of the show. She was, uh, she was definitely the star. In fact, well, she was the star in my eyes. She actually only had one line, but she nailed it. I mean, she did a great job. Her line was the uh, angel's announcement to the shepherds, Luke chapter 2, verse 10, when you know, the, the angel says, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that cause great joy uh, for all the people. And that was, became a really key part of that statement because we would say that verse over and over again. We must have said it well over 100 times in our household last year because we're trying to help Della memorize it. But whenever we would say it... Um, we would really emphasize, we got a habit of emphasizing that last part, for all the people. So she would, she would say, I bring you good news that will cause great joy, and we would all say, for all the people, like that. And so she, she finally started, first she didn't like it, but we kept at it. and She started liking it, and she would say, for all the people. It's funny because yeah, after saying that like a hundred times last year, it began to strike me how odd that might have sounded to the shepherds that day when they heard this announcement. I mean, there was a lot going on that was odd that day. So I don't know if they really caught it because, you know, angels appeared in the sky and said the Messiah is born. So there was a lot for them to take in. But if they had taken a moment to think about that last part of that line, I think that it would have been surprising to them because as Israelites, as Jews, they would have grown up with this hope and this expectation with the teaching that one day a Messiah will come. The promised Messiah will come. But their expectation would have been that the Messiah was coming for all the people of Israel. That's what their expectation was. The Messiah was coming to be the king to free them of the oppression and set them up as his kingdom in Israel. Like he was coming for his chosen people, the sons and daughters of Abraham, for the people of God. And yet this announcement from the angel is for all the, for all the people. And if they had taken the time, and I don't know if they did, but if they had taken the time to really concentrate on that part, I think they would have been really surprised by the scope of the impact that, the, that Christmas would have, that they would have been surprised to hear that uh, the good news would cause great joy, not just for the people of Israel, but for all the people. Well, this morning, um, as we wrap up our Advent series, uh, we're going to continue asking the question we've asked throughout the series. And that's this question. We've said, hey, what if we let what we're celebrating at Christmas determine how we celebrate Christmas? Like, what if we let uh, what we are celebrating instead of consumerism of the season and the traditions of the season, but what if we really just kind of pull all things back and said, okay, what are we celebrating and what if we let that determine how we celebrate Christmas? What would change? What kind of impact would that have? How would God be more fully worshipped? And maybe how would we more fully engage in what we're celebrating? And if you're like me, and clearly a ton of people in our church are like this, they, they, uh, when we celebrate Christmas, we usually go and celebrate with our, with our family or friends. Right, That's why we've got about a hundred and so people missing today, because everyone goes home to go celebrate with their family or friends, and there's, man, nothing wrong with that. Certainly nothing wrong with that. But what I want us to chew on this morning is, what, what if we intentionally chose to celebrate Christmas in a way that could cause uh, even great joy for more people than expected, I put it this way, what if we let what we're celebrating at Christmas lead us to celebrate in a way that would cause great joy for more people than expected? Because certainly that was what the announcement was about when the angels appeared to the shepherds. It's like, man, this is good news. It's going to cause great joy for a wider group than anyone anticipated. What if we celebrated that way? What if we did something that would cause great joy for all different types of people. People that aren't like us. People who perhaps don't live near us. People who maybe don't even believe what we believe. People who maybe don't even celebrate Christmas. What if the way that we celebrated Christmas could somehow have an impact on all types of people, on a wider group than what's normally expected? One of my... uh, Favorite passages in all of Scripture, one of the favorite stories or parables that Jesus tells is is found in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. If you have your Bible, you want to go there, pull it up on your phone, that's the passage we're going to be in this morning. And the reason I want us to spend some time there is because I think what Jesus says in this passage, if we were to put it into practice, it would have a profound impact on who our celebration of Christmas impacts in addition, I think if what Jesus teaches here comes home to our hearts, it has a power to cause us to want to celebrate Christmas in a way that could perhaps cause great joy for a much wider group than normally expected. Like what he says here, if it comes home to us, will cause us to want to celebrate Christmas in this way, and even beyond Christmas, really live our entire lives in a way that would be a blessing that would cause great joy for a very large very wide group of people for all the people and so if you will turn there Luke chapter 10 verse 25 and we'll dive into this and spend some time on it on it this morning Uh, let me just uh, begin with this uh, verse 25 says says this "Um, on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus teacher he asked what must I do to inherit eternal life now just quick you know, make a couple observations here. This teacher of the law um, or expert in the law, that wouldn't be the, the civic law. This would have been uh, the law uh, of, uh, of the Bible, God's law. So this guy you could think of, he's a biblical scholar. And so he gets up and he wants to test Jesus. Another word for test there could be trap, right? And so he's trying to trap Jesus or test Jesus, which might cause you to ask, why would anyone want to do that? Why would this guy want to, want to test Jesus? And most likely, the reason why they're wanting to test—he's wanting to test Jesus—is well, there's probably a number of reasons. One could be that Jesus claimed to be God, and that he did not like that, and so the religious leaders of that day said, I mean, that's not cool," and so uh, they wanted to trap him, test him. But another reason why he's wanting to test Jesus is because Jesus had this crazy habit of of welcoming, accepting, and spending time with sinners in their mind, with, with the, those that didn't really hold the law real seriously. And so this expert of the law would see Jesus be so kind and accepting to people who didn't take the law seriously as he did, as an expert. And so this guy's thinking, okay, Jesus clearly doesn't value the law of God, and yet he has this large crowd, large following, and so I want to test him to, to basically out him. To show everybody that Jesus, who you think is a rabbi, is this great teacher, he, he doesn't care about the law. And so he asks him this question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And most likely, and I, I'm, you know this is some speculation, but most likely he would be expecting Jesus, based on Jesus' behavior, how he accepted all kinds of people, he would probably expect Jesus to say something like, Well, it doesn't really matter what you do. You know, what must I do? It doesn't really matter what you do. Because, you know, God just accepts everyone. So you don't really need to do anything. That's what he's probably expecting Jesus to say because of how Jesus was so gracious with people. But that's not what Jesus says. Look, Look how Jesus responds. He says this. What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? And so Jesus, in his answer, points to the law right? But then he flips the thing, the question, back to the person who asked it, which Jesus did all the time. And so he said, you ask me this question? Well, here it is. Let's point you to the law. Now, how, how do you read it? Which is another way of saying, well, okay, give me your summary of it. Because he wouldn't expect him to start reading the whole law and all the 600 plus you know, laws that are contained in it. He's like, tell me how you would summarize it. And this is how the guy summarizes it. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Which is the common uh, way that people summarize the entire law. In that day and age, that's, that was like what they had arrived on. Like, here's the summary of all of the law. If you could boil it down to two things, it's this. Love the Lord your God with all you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus, having heard that explanation, says this. He says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now this idea of live, that goes back to the first question. What must I do to inherit or receive eternal life? And so Jesus says, there it is. If you just love God with all you are, with all your being, and you love your neighbor as you love yourself, you will do enough to inherit eternal life. You will live. Now, there's an issue with that. Perhaps you feel it, right? And the issue is, um, no one does that, right? No one loves God perfectly all the time with all they are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. No one loves God utmost, top priority, all the time. And nobody always loves their neighbor as they, or just to the exact same degree as they love themselves. And so what's interesting And what you'll see in a second is the way that this, you know, this biblical scholar, this law expert responds is that he feels the weight of what Jesus just said. And what's super interesting is that this guy, remember, he's trying to trap Jesus, trying to test Jesus to show others Jesus does not take the law seriously, so you shouldn't follow him. But then in Jesus' answer, it causes this guy to actually reconsider, oh, man, I wonder if I take the law seriously enough. See, if if Jesus is really saying that what I have to do to inherit eternal life is to love the Lord, my God, perfectly with all I am all the time and love my neighbor just as I love myself, then I'm in trouble. And guys, we could say the same, come to the same conclusion we're in trouble. And I know that that's what this guy arrives at because of what the next verse says. Verse 29 says this. But he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see that phrase, he wanted to justify himself? He's hearing Jesus' answer. He's still hopeful that he can do enough to inherit eternal life. Remember, that's his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And so he's still trying to say, okay, maybe I can do enough To inherit eternal life? And so he asks this clarifying question. (laughs) Well, can you tell me who my neighbor is? In hopes that perhaps the amount of people, or perhaps the, the amount of people and the type of people that would be considered his neighbor, it would still give him some sense that it's achievable, That perhaps, okay, okay. if it's a really small group that's my neighbor, and if I already really like them, and so it's easy to love them, then perhaps I can still love my neighbor well enough to inherit eternal life. And so he's hoping to justify this, hoping to find a way to say, I'm good enough, I'm good enough, I can meet the standard. And so Jesus tells him a story. And the story is famous story, the story of the Good Samaritan. And the story is in response. I want to be real clear. The story is in response. Next slide right here, just kind of sum it up, is, is his response to this question. What does it really mean to love my neighbor? Like, Who is my neighbor? Or another way to put it, uh, uh, the author Tim Keller puts it this way. Uh, what is the bare minimum standard that I must do in order to still be considering loving my neighbor? Okay, what's the bare minimum? How can I reduce the concept of love my neighbor down to who it is and what it means and when I must do it, down to where it's still achievable? And what does it really mean to love my neighbor? And it's to that question that Jesus tells this story. Let me read it for you. Luke chapter 2, story begins um, at verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when he, was attacked, when he was attacked by robbers, and they stripped him of his clothes, and they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down uh, the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, and those who are familiar with the, you know, with the Bible and the history know that Jews and Samaritans hated each other. I'll talk more about that in a minute, but that's, you know, this is worth noting. Someone who should have hated him. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And they went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. And then after telling that story, Jesus stops and he looks at this guy again, this law expert, and he asks him a question. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in in the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Okay, don't miss this. This story is in response to the question, who is my neighbor? Which is really the question, how can I limit who my neighbor is down enough to where I feel like I can actually love my neighbor well? What's the bare minimum standard of who my neighbor is? And in this story, Jesus intentionally and powerfully <laughs> refuses to let this guy, and really us either, limit or reduce in any way possible who our neighbor is. For example, look at this. <laughs> How does he... Like, how does he define what it means to love in this passage? See, I think that we, if, 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 if we're left to our own, we, we might try to limit the idea of loving our neighbor down to having positive feelings about somebody, right? And usually and often we use the idea of love in that way. Like, I, I love, I love uh, pizza, too, too much, which really just means I, I really, you know, have positive feelings about pizza way too often. Yeah, you know, we talk about love as really just a feeling, a positive feeling. But Jesus clearly here shows us that love is not just a feeling. That love is, equal, you know, tangibly meeting needs. Tangibly meeting needs. And in this story, it's tangibly meeting physical and financial needs. You could probably say emotional needs. That's how the Samaritan loves this guy on the road. He meets his tangible needs. So Jesus says, okay, you can't reduce love down to just a feeling. It's meeting, it's it's tangibly meeting needs. In addition, we might try to limit what it means to love our neighbor by saying, well, okay, let's, you know, this is what the Bible expert was trying to do. Uh, You know, let me limit who my neighbor is. But Jesus absolutely will have none of that. See, we we might want to say, okay, well, let's let our neighbor just be people who live close to us or who are like us or who like us. (laughs) That might make it a little bit easier to love them. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Your neighbor is anyone that is in need. Your neighbor is anyone that's in need. In fact, I love how Tim Keller says it in his book, Generous Justice. And I would highly recommend this book to you if you have never read it. Just excellent, excellent book. Um, But in in that, he says this. He says, by depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, and religion, is your neighbor. And you must love your neighbor yeah this idea guys when when jesus tells the story he intentionally puts a jew and and samaritan together he's he's really clearly making the point that there is no one that's outside of the definition of neighbor because for this this bible scholar this jewish bible scholar he would have he would have assumed that his neighbor was definitely not a Samaritan. He felt justified in his right to hate Samaritans. Like he actually felt like he was honoring God by hating Samaritans. The, the Jews thought the Samaritans were this like, half-breed, uh, um, uh, irreligious, heretical race of people. And therefore, to condemn them was to honor God. That was their thinking. And then the Samaritans, the other way around, they saw that the Jews were this incredibly holier-than-thou, vengeful, wrathful, evil group of people. (laughs) And so the hatred went both ways. And it was real and it was strong. And yet Jesus says in this story, no, 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 no. The Samaritan treats the Jew here as a neighbor, and makes the Bible expert at the end admit who was the neighbor. And it's interesting, he can't even say the Samaritan. He, he just finds the, way, the one who showed him mercy is the, way, is the way he does it. But he has to recognize, now, this is who a neighbor is. This is what it looks like to be a neighbor, and this is who I should be a neighbor to. Like, Jesus is so clear. You can't limit who the neighbor is. It's anyone who is in need. Anyone. It's everyone All the people. And then there's another way that Jesus in this story refuses to let us limit who our neighbor is and what it means to love them. And that's when he refuses to let us limit when we should do it. Okay? Now, here's the thing. and You have to read a little bit into the passage to get this, but it's worth noting because when we often, or I'll just speak for myself, I can often feel this sense of, okay, I know I'm supposed to love people well, but... I just am not in a good position to do that right now, and I feel like that's a good excuse. And I could say something like, "Well, I'm, when I get to a more stable place financially, I'll be able to give to those people that are in need," or whenever you know things are better. You know, in my, like life is just so crazy right now, and I just don't feel like things are just super stable. But when I get to a more stable place, then I'll be able to love my neighbor, or whatever. But lots, so many excuses when it comes to where I am financially, where I am circumstantially, where I am in my life stage, with my family, all these things. That I think these, these are limits to when I'm supposed to do this whole love my neighbor thing. But Jesus in this story shows there is no limit. See, when we're supposed to love our neighbor is this, when we see that there's a need. When we see, whenever you see a need. You see that in this passage because Jesus, though he's telling a story, and this is made up, but when he's telling a story, he, he gives some pretty clear you know, details. Like one, he, he says that the person is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Well, that was a, that was a, that was a path that everybody knew. That was a well-traveled road, and yet everyone knew it was a very dangerous road because there was lots of hills, lots of caves on that road. In fact, there was one part of that road that was named the Pass of Blood. That was its nickname, the Pass of Blood, because of all of the robbers, all of the thieves, all of the muggers that would, you know, jump people, hurt people, mug people, and in some cases kill people. And so when Jesus puts the, this, this whole setting on that road, that people are thinking about that place when they were hearing it for the first time. Yeah, that must have happened in the Pass of Blood. And so here's the thing. When the priest walks by and when the Levite walks by, you know what they're thinking? I better move fast because clearly there are robbers on this road because this guy just got mugged. And he's hurting, like he's still alive, which means this must have happened recently, and therefore I better get on my way or else it can happen to me. But then the Samaritan comes by, and he knows the same thing. This is dangerous to stop. This could happen to me if I'm going to try to help this guy out. If I'm going to put him on my donkey, I'm going to be moving even slower. That could really help people catch up to me and mug me. And yet incredibly inconvenient, incredibly sacrificial, even extremely dangerous, he stops and he helps this guy. And then on top of that, when he does take him into the town, he opens up his money, you know, his purse, whatever, he, whatever they carried money in, the, the wallet, old-school wallet, and they pulls out the two denarii, and he tells the innkeeper, hey, whatever it's going to take to get this guy better, You just let me know, I'll pay for it. Incredibly sacrificial. Incredibly dangerous. Guys, Jesus is telling this story to help us see the time for us to love our neighbor is any time you see a need. Even if it's going to cost you radically. Even if it's going to cost you. Even if it's going to burden you even if it's going to make you in a bad place. Now, how are you feeling? This is, I'm so, are you so glad you showed up for the, the Sunday before Christmas? Like for Christmas this year, let me give you a bunch of guilt, right? Like here, how are you doing? Loving your neighbor, you feel guilty? Merry Christmas, let's get on. Now, seriously, if this is, if this is what it means to love our neighbor— that we, it's, it's tangibly meeting needs and, and, and our neighbor's anyone in need and we're supposed to do it whenever you see a need, then all of us can look at this and say, man, I'm, ter- I'm a terrible neighbor. I don't do, I can think of a ton of people right now that I'm not doing that for or I failed to do that for. So what do we do with that? What is, <laughs> what in the world, let me ask another question. What in the world would ever cause us to love our neighbor in this way? Because, I mean, I, like, this is hard, right? I mean, who does this? And is, it even, is there even anything that could cause us to love our neighbor in this way? Well, that's a big question I want to kind of wrap up with, though I still have a little time, so don't, don't, don't get excited. I'm not wrapping up yet. This is my last point. But this, this, big, this big question, what possibly could cause us to love our neighbor, let me just say right off the bat, uh, guilt won't do it. So if you're feeling guilty, stop it, because it's not going to help. It's not going to get you far enough to actually love your neighbor. And also, I would say moral or civic duty won't do it. I think that that's one of the main reasons why Jesus actually includes the priest and Levite in this story. It's because, this is interesting, the priest and the Levite, it was part of their responsibility and their profession or their who they were that they were the people in Israel that passed alms out to the poor. And one part of their job was kind of, had a social worker kind of job aspect. It was their duty and it was their moral convict, conviction that we should care for the poor. And yet when they come across this guy beating up on the side of the road and they recognize, man, it's going to cost me something greatly, potentially, to take care of this guy, their moral duty, their civic duty was not enough to get them to love him sacrificially. And guys, moral duty, civic duty, all that kind of stuff um, is really good. Like, I'm not anti that. It will help you be generous. It can help you care for people. But here's the thing. And I think that I think if you're honest, you, you admit this. It, it's just it, it helps you move in the right direction. It just doesn't take you far enough. It can't get you to sacrifice to this degree, to love your neighbor as yourself, no matter who it is, no matter how bad they're hurting, no matter what it will cost you. Those things, moral duty, civic duty, just can't get you there. But. What can? Well, let me tell you, it's not a command. A command can't get you there. A command can tell you what you should do. That's what Jesus has laid out for this guy, love your neighbor. But we need something stronger than a command to get us to obey the command. We need to be compelled. We need to be compelled. And the only thing that will compel us to love in this way is if you see that you have been loved in this way. And guys, that's the beautiful part of this story that I just think another example of how brilliant Jesus is as a teacher is that uh, the way that he tells the story, he's super intentional about where he places the biblical scholar, the law expert, you know, where he places him in the story, where his representative is in the story. See, the, the story isn't this, right? It's not... Hey, Jesus, well, tell me, who is my neighbor? And he says, well, let me just give you a story. Here's a story. What if one day you were on the road to Jericho and you came across a Samaritan and he was laying in the road beating up, and yet you saw that you're supposed to love your neighbor, and so you got off your donkey and you went and and bandaged this guy's wounds and pulled oil on his wounds, and you got him up on your donkey, and you took him to the inn, and you told him to take care of him, and you paid for it. That would be an example of who your neighbor is and how to love them. Go and do likewise. That could have been the story. And this guy would have fully, more fully understood the command of who his neighbor is and what it looks like to love them. And he probably would have said, okay, I see that now. Now it's clear who my neighbor is. It's, it's a wider group than I was hoping. <laughs> okay. Um, and he might have even said, and, uh, you know, good luck because I will never do that because I hate Samaritans. And so I guess I will never inherit eternal life. Like he could have said something like that. But that's not how Jesus told the story, is it? Now Jesus puts the guy representing the, the law expert in the street, beaten and bloodied, mugged and robbed, with no hope of being saved unless someone comes along and rescues him. And then Jesus intentionally makes, in the story, makes the point that the person that does come along to rescue him is the last person you would ever come to expect to come rescue him because the person who comes is the enemy who doesn't owe this guy in the road anything. If at all, he owes him an extra kick on his way. But Jesus tells a story to say, no, that's the one, the one you would least expect. Your enemy is the one who comes and binds your wounds and restores you to health. And in telling the story in that way, Jesus is trying to get this guy to recognize what if you were in the road and that's how you were loved? What impact would that have on you? How would that change your perspective? That when you were feeling better, how would that catapult you into how you live from that point on? Who would you show love to? How would you treat people given that you were treated that way. Friends, that's what brings us back to Christmas. That's what we're celebrating. When we celebrate Christmas, we're celebrating the fact that as we were dead in the road, the Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses or our transgressions. That apart from Christ, we had no hope. We could never save ourselves. We were lying dead in the road. And the, our only hope was someone who had absolutely no, we could have no expectation to come and rescue us. Someone who according to Romans 5.10 says that we were the enemies of. And yet on Christmas, God leaves the safety of heaven and comes to earth and comes down our road. And not at risk of being killed, like the Samaritan. But though he knew he would be killed, he bound our wounds. He healed our heart. He made us new. He restored us back to God. Guys, that's how we've been loved. That's what we get to celebrate at Christmas. Romans 5.8 says this. This is how God demonstrated his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, guys, the story of the good Samaritan points us to the great Samaritan that is Jesus Christ. That he is the one who has loved us when we desperately need it, had no hope of healing ourselves, no hope of rescuing ourselves, and yet he came, though we did not deserve it. Because we had offended him. We had sinned against him. We had rejected him. And yet he did not come to reject us. Mr. the read today. He did not come to condemn us, to save us. As that's what we get to celebrate on Christmas. That is how you've been loved. And that is the only thing. When it takes hold of your heart, when it, you get that, when it grasps that, it is the only thing that could possibly motivate you, compel you to go and love your neighbor to the degree that God calls us to. It's only when you first see that this is how you've been loved will you then go and love to this degree. Again, that's what we're gonna celebrate at Christmas. So let me ask you a question. What if what we're celebrating at Christmas, what if we let that determine how we celebrate at Christmas? Would, would it not change the scope of who our celebration would impact? Would it not potentially cause great joy for all the people? That would, we wouldn't just limit it to the people that we want to limit it down to when we think about our neighbors, people that we like, people that are like us, people who are near but we would say, no, no, no. Jesus came for all the people and it's his, his, his good news for all the people that causes great joy for all the people. And therefore, when I celebrate Christmas, I'm not just going to celebrate it in a way that's good news and great, brings great joy to people who are close to me. But for all types of people, for a wider group of people than expected, because that's who I'm called to love. And that's what I'm celebrating and how I've been loved. And so therefore, I turn and love others like that. What if we did that? Would Christmas not become even greater news again? Would it not bring greater joy again to our world if we as believers celebrated that, celebrated it in that way? Absolutely would. And so all through this series, we've been talking about one way to do that. All right. And so one, one, um, Just one application, there's tons of applications of what Jesus teaches in this passage, but one way that we've been saying we would like to apply that as a church family is by giving financially, using what we don't spend over Christmas season on people who already have plenty, and take some of that money and and redirect it to a group that perhaps would be unexpected, but would bring great joy to them in light of how Jesus has loved us. And for us, we said, well, let's do that through the uh, movement Dress Simber because we have so many people in our church family that are advocates of that. In fact, here's a wild stat, guys, but our Dress Simber team uh, or the people that are uh, part of our church that are on this Dress Simber team, they've raised over $24,000 already this month. Man, is that not amazing? $24,000 to help put an end to modern-day slavery. This is just incredible. And as a church family, we said, we want to rally behind that. That our celebration in Christmas, and the fact that Jesus has come to set us free, that we would, one way we would celebrate that is by aiding and setting others free. And so we are taking a special offering this morning, and we're gonna do that during our time of communion. And so, what that's gonna look like is just in a minute, I'm gonna lead us into communion like we do every Sunday, and we'll have these buckets up here. And if you want to give, towards December, then you can just put your money in there and everything that's given in this time is going to go towards uh, December for the, you know, to end modern day slavery. Um, let me just make a couple st- you know, quick statements here. One is, uh, if you're visiting with us, uh, please feel no obligation here. We've been talking about this for weeks, all right? So the, this is probably a surprise to you. Uh, you. You can participate. We certainly are going to tell you you can't, but we want you to know that it's not our expectation and that we don't want you to do it out of guilt, all right? That, but if you, you know, so just know that that's, uh, this is you know, not expected of you. Second, second thing is, um, we've said this every single week, but if there's another group of people that are dear to your heart, you know, orphan, uh, the widow, um, you know, just on and on, refugee. Uh, you want to give towards that? You have all the freedom to do that. Many of you already have done something like that this month. And so that's great. And again, no expectation that you're going to give during this time. We, we just want to give this as an opportunity, as one application of what we've been talking about this whole month, as well as this message. It's one way that we can begin to celebrate Christmas in a way that actually <laughs> reflects what we're celebrating at. Christmas. That really is good news. that calls great joy for all the people. So uh, in a minute, you'll be able to have, come and give towards that. But before we do that, let, me, let, me, uh, let us move into a time of communion. And our hope is that uh, during communion, as we remember Jesus' body broken, his blood spilled for us, that what this will be a time where we are, again, renewed and reminded, or perhaps for the first time, that you realize that this is how you've been loved. Because the truth is, we're called to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, soul, and strength. And we're called to love our neighbors just as ourselves. And none of us do that. None of us do that Perfectly and we deserve God's judgment his condemnation as a result but on christmas god did not come to condemn the world but to save the world and that jesus came while we were lying dead on the street to come heal us to rescue us to save us and to reconcile us to him and we that's how we've been loved and through faith in Jesus Christ alone, for the forgiveness of your sins, believing that he died for you and rose again to give you new life, your promise that you are reconciled to God. You're saved, not based on what you do for him, but what he's done for you. As that's how you've been loved, as we take communion, may we remember that. And may it compel us to love our neighbors, anyone in need, just as we've been loved. Heavenly Father, God, we we did not deserve the way you loved us. And yet you have loved us in this way. Every one of us in this room has been loved by, by you to this radical degree. And God, some of us recognize that and some of us don't. But God, I pray that all of us would, to a greater degree, come to realize that this is how we've been loved in Christ. And that even as we take communion, that we would remember His body broken, His blood spilled for us, Lord, it would do something, grip our hearts, and move us to leave this place compelled to love others as You have loved us. Yeah, we pray that what's given in our church family uh, towards Dressenberg, God, would really be used and 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 fruitful in its use to free people from modern day slavery. God, would You free them from slavery? And then, God, would you also free them from the slavery of sin, that they would come to know you. God, may this celebration of Christmas continue to bring great joy for all the people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.